I'm uh, Paul Peppis. I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. And I want to uh, welcome you to this, the third public lecture in the OHC's annual named lecture series. This year, our theme is belonging. We've invited the speakers in our belonging series to apply their diverse perspectives, experiences, and knowledge to our theme in hopes of fostering productive conversations about what it means to belong, who decides who belongs, and how to create more inclusive systems of belonging for everyone. Given our focus on the promise and problem of belonging, I want now to give our customary land acknowledgement. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapui Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homelands of the Kalapui people. Following treaties uh, between 1851 and 1855, Kalapui people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the Coast Reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapui people descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the UO, to Oregon, and to the world. In following the indigenous protocol of acknowledging the original people of the lands we occupy, we also extend our respect to the nine federally recognized indigenous nations of Oregon, the Burns Paiute tribe, the Confederated Tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sioux Law Indians, the Confederated Tribes of Siletzwin Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, the Coquel Indian Tribe, the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians, and the Klamath Tribes. We express our respect to the many more tribes who have ancestral connections to this territory, as well as to, as well as to all other displaced indigenous peoples who call this place that we call Oregon home. Before I formally introduce our speaker, author and researcher Britt Ray, I have a couple of other announcements. Uh, our information table is over there, where people can find out about o uh, upcoming OHC-sponsored and co-sponsored events, including the remaining two events in our Belonging series. And you can sign up for our mailing list. Uh, Britt Ray has graciously agreed to take questions following the talk. Because we're live streaming the lecture, people will need to come to the microphones in the aisles to ask questions and to speak directly into the mics. Uh, to maximize audience opportunities to ask questions, please keep your question as concise as possible and make sure to ask a question. <laughs> I also need to offer some uh, thank yous. Uh, thanks, as always, and first to the OHC's incredible staff, our associate director, Gina Turner, our program coordinator, Melissa Gustafson, our communications coordinator, Peg Fries Gerhardt, and our student assistants, Eliana Friedman and Edwin Delgado. Uh, thanks too to our collaborators in EMU Event Services and in UO Media Services for logistical and technical support. Thanks to our ASL interpreters, Kelly Coplin and Kyle Cottrell. And last but not least, thanks to our generous donors. If you want to join them in supporting the OHC and our public and research programs, you can go to our website, ohc.uoregon.edu. Uh, it's my pleasure now to introduce tonight's speaker, Britt Ray, who will deliver the 2022-23 Criticos Lecture. Established in 1993, the Criticos Professorship brings to UO distinguished scholars, critics, and public intellectuals. From the Greek, Criticos translates roughly as able to judge, evaluate, and criticize. As the term suggests, the Criticos Professorship was created to foster the education of UO students, faculty, and community members, 
and to promote intelligent, critical public discourse across our state. In our deliberations to select a critical speaker on our theme of belonging, we wanted to invite someone who could speak to the crisis of climate change in innovative ways. We reasoned that the problem of climate change was significantly a problem of belonging. What I mean by that is that climate change has resulted in large part from a profound misunderstanding of our relations to the natural world, the more than human world. Instead of understanding ourselves as part of that world, we have understood ourselves as apart from it, alienated from it, in a state of not belonging. That misunderstanding has led to the related view, not only that we are not part of the natural world, but that we are superior to it. In this twisted logic, we embraced a very different understanding of belonging, that the natural world belongs to us, to use as we saw fit, to exploit, to use up. The terrible cost of that misunderstanding, that alienated relation to the natural world, are now insistently clear, confronting us every day. For all of us, and especially for younger people, those costs are increasingly not just climatic, but also psychological. We are now dealing with the stresses, anxieties, and fears associated with climate change. To address the climate crisis, we must also address the mental health crises it generates. There are few current thinkers, researchers, and writers better suited to confront the intertwined problems of climate change and climate anxiety than tonight's speaker, Britt Ray. <coughs> Britt Ray is a human and planetary health postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford Center for Innovation and Global Health, Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, and London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Center on Climate Change and Planetary Health. Ray's research focuses on the mental health impacts of the climate crisis on young people and frontline community members, socio-emotional resilience and capacity building for vulnerable communities, and public engagement for improved mental well-being and planetary health. Ray's first book, Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction, was published in 2017. Ray is the, curator of, uh, the creator of the weekly newsletter about staying sane in the climate crisis called Gen Dread, and most recently, she is the author of the book Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, from 2022. Ray has hosted several podcasts, radio and TV programs with the BBC and the CBC, and is a TED speaker. Tonight, she will speak to us about how to cope with climate anxiety, saving the earth, and saving ourselves. Please join me in welcoming Britt Ray. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Happy International Women's Day to you all. Yeah? I really appreciate the introduction that Paul just gave about belonging uh, being at the source of this crisis, and I hope that we explore this from a variety of angles together tonight. And I just want to foreground that while, of course, in the title, this is being billed as coping with climate anxiety, we will get there. In order to do that, we must describe the problem, which is just my way of warning you that we're going to start out on a bit of a heavy note. And I'm going to share some of my own vulnerabilities in order to hopefully make that safe and okay for you to explore your own within this collective crisis. And so I just want to take the temperature in the room first and foremost. Who in here has ever acknowledged or recognized within yourself that you have emotions about the climate crisis? Okay, cool. That's quite a good lot of you. 
Who here has ever externalized these emotions by speaking about them to another person? About the same amount. Okay, good. Great. And who in here thinks, what the heck is she talking about climate emotions? Anyone? Oh, a very validating group. Well, thank you for that. All right, so uh, just brief introduction on how I came to do this work. As Paul mentioned, I've been doing the science communication, public broadcasting uh, for over a decade. I wrote my first book about a biotechnological solution with lots of ethical questions that is meant to address the biodiversity crisis called de-extinction. I have a background in conservation biology in terms of degrees. And so thinking about environmental topics of degradation certainly part of my daily experience. But it wasn't until a certain point in about 2017 that while I was used to this kind of distress and new ways of managing it within my own life, it became overwhelming to me and actually something that I didn't have such a cool handle on anymore. So you might remember that there were big popular articles like David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth. This was at the time the most ever read article in the history of New York <laughs> Magazine, which later turned into his best-selling New York Times book, uh, The Uninhabitable Earth, which brought about a humanities of global warming that we hadn't really seen before. He was writing about worst case scenarios and describing in grim detail how we won't even be able to survive in the shade under certain warming scenarios because the heat and humidity index will become so much that we kind of boil alive from the inside. And um, this was paired with a lot of other really alarmist narratives that were meant to galvanize action and move people to take this seriously given the closing window we have to make effective change. Well, this certainly caught my attention, but so did other things like the 2018 IPCC report, that's the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which issued that year what the difference of half a degree of warming would make, outlining if we hit 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming or 2 degrees Celsius of warming, and how it, this makes all the difference for whether we have coral reefs or not, for instance, in the future. And the way that this was narrativized in the media kind of told the world and broadcast the message that we only have 12 years to avert climate catastrophe that we won't be able to recover from. This started to create a new sea change in how people were discussing psychological reactions to this information that was in itself potentially traumatic. And of course, I was noticing the pileup of all the climate disasters you couldn't avoid, the wildfires, the floods, the hurricanes, the ongoing drought, and so forth. And I was feeling a lot of this, especially. Broken record, record breaking, which is a term that comes to us from artists at the Bureau of Linguistical Reality who are coming up with new terminology to describe these turbulent times. Broken record, record breaking is a recurring feeling of deja vu, quiet terror, and slow shock, which is both acute and familiar, that occurs when opening a newspaper, radio program, or website, and reading a headline that that year, month, season, or day has broken the record for the hottest on record. Who has ever felt broken record, record breaking before? Yeah, it's a good word for the times. Also at that time, my partner and I were talking seriously about trying to get pregnant. And while Many parts of me really wanted to rush into this and create a family. I also was dealing with what I had my eyes on eight plus hours a day as a science communicator paying attention to climate and biodiversity. And to say uh, what's obvious, that created a pregnant pause for me when I was trying to contemplate what any child born today is gonna have to deal with given the lack of effective action. It was really this 
on-ramp through reproductive anxiety in the face of climate threats that caused me to dig deeper into what was going on, why I felt all this grief and anger and outrage and frustration and anxiety in new levels that I hadn't before and now that I was contemplating this big decision that was really going to sculpt the rest of our, our lives together and shape our family. And so I'm going to play now uh, a little clip that comes from a documentary that has basically cataloged um, and documented this process over many years of me uh, you know, feeling the distress but then deciding to turn my science communicator brain in on myself and you know, realize that if I'm having this kind of psychological reaction, surely other people are being impacted on a mental health and emotional level in far more interesting ways than just what this is doing in my life. So what is that? How can we have and raise a conversation around what's happening towards constructive coping elements that can help further climate action. This was the kind of big question. Um, and at the same time, uh, there were activist movements of youth climate justice advocates coming together and creating um, political campaigns around reproductive refusal, basically saying to power makers that they are refusing to have kids until leaders make it safe for them to do so by demonstrating adequate climate action that is in line with what the science says ought to be done to prevent a catastrophic climate chaos scenario in the future. So this little clip comes from the film Climate Baby Dilemma that was just released that, that explores some of these topics. So this journey of looking around to ask diverse experts from multiple fields and people with lived experience about what the mental health aspects of the climate crisis were fed into this book, Generation Dread, that was published last year. And I was quite disturbed by discovering how woefully unprepared many mental health professionals felt and were communicating to me about their own um, preparation for climate trauma, essentially both from climate disasters and this kind of vicarious uh, concern just from having deep climate awareness around how dire the threat is becoming, and that they needed tools and innovations and arguments for centering this and prioritizing this in policy and climate leadership. So um, it was really from that gaping hole that they made apparent to me while interviewing more than 100 people for the book that I decided to change my career, leave my old field of synthetic biology, and come over into using my, my research uh, time and skill to be able to help fill in some of those gaps and co-developed interventions that might support here, which is what brings me to be able to talk with you today about some of this data that we're gathering around um, these psychological impacts. So let's get into them. As now being in medical school, researching uh, what these impacts are, of course, uh, unsurprisingly, I deal with a lot of difficult statistics. Um, one to start with is 39%. So that is the global average of uh, youth aged 16 to 25 who tell us that their thoughts and feelings about the climate crisis make them hesitant to have their own children. So this comes from a study that my colleagues and I did with 10,000 youth in 10 countries around the world across low, middle, and high income settings. We were looking in India, Nigeria, Philippines, Brazil, Portugal, US, UK, France, Finland. And uh, we wanted to understand these psychological impacts of the climate crisis in their lives. 75% of the global young people said that the future is frightening to them as a result of climate change. 56% said that they feel humanity is doomed. And 45% reported functional interference on a daily basis. So that means that their distress about the climate is 
interrupting eating, sleeping, concentrating, playing, having fun, being in relationship, those kinds of tasks. And we noticed that while 45% is a high number in terms of functional interference globally, it really skyrocketed in global South countries. So in India, Nigeria, and the Philippines, where it was closer to 74%, 66%. Why is this? Well, of course, uh, here youth are experiencing the brunt of climate harms already and first and had far little to do compared to people in high-income nations with polluting the atmosphere that's causing the warming. So this really outlines why the conversation about climate and mental health needs to be one about climate and mental health justice, for instance. The most reported emotions were being uh, feeling sad, afraid, anxious, angry, and powerless. Um, and I tell you all this not to depress you, but just to highlight how our still expanding fossil fuel infrastructure and um, kind of greenwashing practices rather than real robust transformation of our economy is landing on the shoulders of young people to make them feel a narrowing sense of possibility in their own futures. Um, we found that the climate distress is significantly associated with this feeling of being failed by governments and betrayed by leaders, which then connects with what betrayal trauma researchers call institutional betrayal, which is uh, wrongdoings that are perpetrated by an institution upon individuals who are dependent on that institution, which has been studied in a variety of contexts. Um, and we know can wreak all kinds of psychological distress when people with less power observe that those who are meant to protect them are not upholding their end of the deal and doing so knowingly. Okay, so that's pretty heavy. And all of these constructs relate to this term you might have heard of, eco-anxiety. So the American Psychological Association has defined eco-anxiety as the chronic fear of environmental doom. And Researchers argue that it's much more than anxiety. It's kind of an umbrella of difficult emotions that a person can confront uh, in climate and ecological crisis settings. So yes, anxiety, but also sadness, frustration, outrage, anger, uh, grief, guilt perhaps, shame, often a sense of helplessness or powerlessness, um, things that will pop up um, in appearance as a, as a gang of difficult feelings one must cycle through. However, mental health professionals have argued that even though it has a clinical sounding name, eco-anxiety, there's nothing pathological about this. It's in fact a very normal response, an appropriate response even to a real unfolding global threat, right? So this is the adaptive power of anxiety. We've evolved to feel it because it sends out an alarm signal that something important to us is under threat, and then it gets us to mobilize some resources towards fending off the danger. And so in this way, it's a sign that we care about all that's in harm's way and all that's being lost. And this is why it's also been argued that perhaps a more appropriate term is to call it eco-compassion instead. And that if we do feel this, we can appreciate that we care so much about the world that it causes us distress and acknowledge that there's a strength and a virtue in that, that it's a badge of our humanity. Climate anxiety is a specific, climate specific form of this anxiety and it's been linked to many different things in the scientific literature so far. So climate events, unsurprisingly, when something big and damaging happens that terrifies people, let's say the North American heat dome, of the Pacific Northwest that happened a couple of years ago. Well, 
We do have data that took uh, measurements on people's climate anxiety in British Columbia before that event, about a month before, and then researchers took the measurement again about a month after the event and saw significant jumps in the cognitive emotional impairment as well as functional impairment that can come with climate anxiety. Um, also, climate information seeking behavior. So we know it's really easy to doom scroll in this day and age and that we're all connected to these devices that are bringing us in closer contact with um, doom and gloom narratives about the poly crisis that we're kind of trudging through climate and otherwise. And so unsurprisingly, focusing on that also stokes the anxiety. However, climate anxiety has also time and again in many studies been linked to pro-environmental behavior, collective action taking, courageous forms of building coalitions and then working for what is adaptive about the anxiety. So, of course, Greta Thunberg has talked about her climate anxiety as being an experience that forced her into her leadership, and many others also um, who are really just trailblazers in the climate movement say the same. However, climate anxiety has also been linked to poor mental well-being, so panic attacks, sleep disturbances, and in some extreme cases, even suicidality. So what we're talking about here is an emerging mental health issue for emerging adults especially who are feeling it, which is a really complex phenomenon, right? We can't bottle it up as being only maladaptive or only adaptive. And we don't yet fully understand the continuum of how this moves and how to protect people who start to feel it so that we can just harness it for the pro-social, pro-environmental outcomes that we want. But that's a goal. So, Climate anxiety has been called out as an overwhelmingly white phenomenon. The idea being that it's only the worried well, um, privileged people who have been able to take their safety for granted up until this point, who have such a kind of internal shattering around their climate awareness that makes them feel for the first time that the world is a tragic and fragile place that threatens their own ontological security in the world. Whereas, of course, for many groups who have long been marginalized, living under the thumb of oppression from intergenerational trauma of colonization, slave trade, living under an authoritarian regime, being in a war zone, and so on, this set of distresses will be nothing new. And so it's kind of a layering effect for those um, for whom existential threat is something that they've developed existential resilience for. Now, uh, another way of looking at this comes from the environmental justice scholar and philosopher, Kyle White, who's also a member of the Potawatomi Nation. And he tells us that as we now see climate anxiety emerging as a construct in our society at large, as people are feeling shaken and unsafe, for indigenous peoples, this all feels like deja vu. Like what we're dealing with now is a cyclical repetition where external pressures are threatening health and the environment and forcing people to adapt to massive turbulent change, which is a lot like what settler colonialism did for many indigenous peoples, um, disrupting their relationships with kin and wild places and natural ecosystems. And those who survived the genocide had to learn how to adapt to that and continue their furtherance. Um, so here he's drawing this connection, which again highlights the, the privileged aspect. But when we look at the data, it tends to tell a different story. While these are very important, understandable critiques to make, um, the numbers tell us that climate anxiety really is spreading all over the world and hurting people's mental health everywhere in low, middle, and high income settings. So in 
Uganda, in the Philippines, in Portugal, in Brazil. This is the largest study to date um, with over 12,000 youth um, in 32 countries, which is showing us that it is really not just an issue for the worried well, so to speak. I apologize for the fuzz that's now coming through on the slides. I'm not sure why that is. Um, but uh, in, in this country, from the Yale program on climate communications, for instance, we have data that shows that it is um, Latinos and African Americans who are more likely to be alarmed or concerned about climate change than whites, and that it's linked to an awareness about how environmental injustices specifically prey upon their communities and leads people to stand up and take action more so, again, than their white counterparts. So the constructive element shows up. Let's back up though and talk a bit about the relationship between climate change and our mental health. It's not just that we have these events such as a heat dome that can create difficulty that causes mental distress and trauma and then impacts our mental health. It's also that our mental health impacts how we can address climate change because essentially how battered we feel determines how well we can build a new world. If we're so emptied out, burned out, or focused on our own survival because of the pressures that we're feeling, well then we don't have a lot left in the tank, so to speak, to take on the massive transformative changes and enact the planetary health policies that we need to turn this ship around. So we're exploring here a vicious cycle that we need to be aware of. But the fact that they're interconnected in this bi-directional cyclical way means that we can also flip it into a virtuous cycle, tapping into win-win policies and co-beneficial approaches that can really address both the climate problem and the mental health crisis within it at once. So an example of that, for instance, um, by increasing the provision of green and blue spaces where we live, we can tap into climate benefits because the more foliage and greenery and tree cover that we have, especially in urban heat islands, that absorbs Carbon dioxide provides shade as well, all of which work together to reduce heat and warming impacts. Simultaneously, we get to beef up the vegetation, the wild spaces that provide nature for people to forest bathe in, to intentionally spend time in, so that this can um, allow them to access nature's stress management properties. It's good for boosting the immune system, and also nature mitigates against temperatures that impacts on our mental health, and allows people to sleep more comfortably at night. There are acute climate stressors and chronic climate stressors. So we know that, for instance, extreme weather events and heat waves cause post-traumatic stress disorder. They can spike anxiety, depression, um, even forms of maladaptive coping. We see domestic abuse often after traumatic extreme weather events boost in households, um, as well as substance abuse. And we know also that the psychological impacts from disaster can exceed physical injury about 40 to 1. So we're talking about a lot of invisible injury here that's working under the surface of the physical destruction that we might see after a superstorm. And also extreme heat is linked to aggression, violent behavior, and suicidality. We see extra hospital admissions on super hot days, for instance, because of self-harm. Chronic climate stressors include things that wear away at the social um, determinants of well-being. So forced migration, water and food shortages, insecure livelihoods, and increasingly the awareness <laughs> caused by the kind of doom-scrolling access that we have. But we're not all affected the same. The literature shows that some groups are more vulnerable than others. Children and young people, as I've already mentioned, um, they shoulder 88% of the increased burden of global disease that's attributable to climate change. So it's hugely, sharply um, disproportionate for, for this population. Women, 
who experience more climate anxiety, um, people experiencing direct climate impacts and those with limited capacity to adapt. So of course people on the front lines of disaster who are um, then extra endangered if they happen to be living with disabilities and have a hard time being able to leave or evacuate a scene. And those on the front lines are disproportionately um, black and indigenous people of color living um, in global frontline scenarios around the world. People with pre-existing mental illnesses who are two to three times more likely to die in a heat wave. People with livelihoods and cultures strongly connected to the lands, I'm thinking farmers and ranchers and also indigenous peoples. So um, ecological grief is a construct that you might have heard of and this refers to grieving real environmental losses that have already happened, um, anticipating future losses and kind of having an anticipatory grief response about that and also grieving what is wearing away in terms of our cultures and identities when those are tied to the land and then the land shifts and we can't practice anymore. So um, a lot of foundational research on this has come from Inuit communities in Labrador in Canada's circumpolar north who say that they are people of the ice and now that with the vast warming that they're experiencing, the ice is not frozen for as many months of the year as it used to be, which prevents people from carrying out hunting, fishing, traipsing along the ice like ancestors have for thousands of years, things that are spiritually nourishing and really feed that sense of belonging for their community and identity. And so um, then people are bereft naturally to ask if we are people of the ice, what do we do when there is no more ice? And therefore it kind of outlines how ecological grief is an existential grief about the world and one's place within it. But another vulnerable community that people don't talk about all that often are the frontline climate and environmental professionals. Does anyone in here work in climate science, environmental science? Is anyone a climate journalist, maybe an activist? Yeah. Okay, great. So some of you, and I would be curious if, if this tracks for your experience. Um, not everyone feels this, of course, but there is a psychological toll that comes with bearing witness to ecological degradation in a professional manner, you know, eight plus hours a day, and also caring so much about these issues that you've devoted your life to it. And some common sentiments that these frontline um, environmental professionals will voice are things like feeling so much urgency, um, no, no limit to the urgency, essentially, and a lot of personal moral responsibility to use one's knowledge to solve the problem and create coalitions with others and really um, get this right. However, no matter what one does, it's just not enough. And dealing with that sense of incompleteness can be really taxing. Also, knowing um, that the worst is yet to come, so to speak, can cause a lot of strain. Um, feeling like people around you don't seem to care, maybe like the institutions that uh, you're working with are not prioritizing this. And then just facing entrenched setbacks in our politics and in our cultural norms around the fact that we have so many solutions and yet we're still not enacting them at the scale that's required. So people can oscillate between being outraged and depressed by all of this until for some it becomes too much and they might burn out or suppress the feelings or go numb or quit and you know, escape the mental taxation of this and go into something that's much easier to leave at the office. And so um, scores of environmental educators around the world now are actually noticing this kind of effect in their students. That by and they say that by simply doing their job, showing up to the classroom, teaching curriculum that focuses on global environmental problems like climate change, that they're causing their students to feel fatalistic about their own futures. The material is often too heavy for them and students want to either switch out of their programs or drop out entirely. 
A few years ago, a professor named Jennifer Atkinson at the University of Washington created a humanities course to engage with her environmental science students' despair using humanities tools, using art, using literature, film, and psychology. And the first time that it was offered, it filled up overnight, and this course has run at full capacity ever since. Students who long felt deviant and alone in the severity of their concern for what is happening to the earth could for the first time safely express how they felt with others and find solidarity in a validating setting that could contain their ego anxiety and anger, and then find new ways of reframing and thinking critically about the problem, which is what the humanities teaches us to do so effectively. Therapeutic relief would follow, as well as a commitment to stay in their studies, because at the end of the day, community saves. As one student wrote on the course evaluation form after the first time that this course was offered, this class has taught me that grief must be felt, but love may be more so, and that even in times of absolute disaster, the world keeps going and humans help each other. So thanks to a distressed and isolated climate science graduate student who reached out to me last year, I'm now teaching a similar course at Stanford's new Dewar School of Sustainability called Confronting Emotions in the Climate Sciences. And it's really designed to equip the next generation of climate scientists with the psychosocial supports and skills that they need to flourish in their very important work and support them when the going gets tough so that they don't burn out and so that we don't uh, experience um, what we've seen with the pandemic, for instance, with frontline healthcare workers burning out very understandably in the long emergency addressing the climate crisis. We also need to protect and support those frontline professionals so that they don't have to do the same. Um, and interestingly, multiple studies have shown that climate scientists tend to resort to emotional suppression to deal with the difficulty that comes with their work. Um, but emotional suppression is not healthy. Um, often they will focus on hyper-rationality in order to get on with their work and ignore what they perceive to be emotional interruptions that need to be extracted as artifactual noise and that don't get processed with others. Um, but this kind of suppression always backfires in the long run. The distress reappears along with shame for not being able to smother uh, the distress, so to speak. And it's been linked, of course, to many bad short and long-term health effects, affecting memory and blood pressure and depression and all sorts of things that we don't want. So it's really a time of norm shifting around what it means to be in the trenches of this work and what equipment might help us do that better. And just in case there are any environmental science educators or environmental studies or environmental humanities people in this room, uh, there is this great resource, existentialtoolkit.com, which contains a bunch of interventions and activities and approaches for supporting the emotional aspect that usually goes unnamed in the classroom when learning about the environmental global problems that we face that cause students to sometimes feel fatalistic or despairing so that it can lead to those more constructive outcomes that feed a sense of belonging and solidarity. Okay, so even though a lot of that was really challenging and negative, climate emotions are not all quote-unquote negative. Um, there are many emotions that are super positive and restoring and nurturing that are also part of dealing and living with climate change. And a systematic study of the literature on climate emotions has produced this taxonomy, which shows that there's lots of evidence of motivation, an urge to act, determination, pleasure, joy, pride, taking up hope and optimism, a sense of belonging, togetherness, connection, love, empathy, caring, and compassion. So how can we tap into this to make climate action uh, about the politics of desire 
rather than all that we want to avoid and protect ourselves from um, with these kinds of soft denial uh, defenses that we might be using against the anxiety that is uncomfortable to feel. You know, when I was writing the book, aside from just being surprised by how unprepared the mental health fields feel to deal with climate mental health issues, I was also really disturbed just to see how many people out there have ascribed to this idea that there's nothing that can be done, that it's too late, that the die is cast when it's come to the climate, and we're just gonna have to wait for our apocalyptic unraveling, so to speak. Um, but as the paleoglaciologist and ecologist Jacqueline Gill likes to say, there is no such thing as too late. The climate crisis is not a pass-fail test. There's no point at which we give up and action doesn't matter anymore. Even if we blow way past our 2030 Paris Agreement goals, for instance, preventing every single tenth of a degree of warming matters as it translates into supporting millions of lives, and that's always going to be worthwhile, and so we need to get real about courageous and convicted action, no matter um, how tough the external circumstances might look. But we can't do that if we're not talking about the fact that this can take a weathering toll on our internal climates. So um, the way that people move through climate anxiety, ecological anxiety and grief has actually been charted and mapped by a Finnish researcher named Panu Pigala. And he, he shows how many people move often through a state of kind of semi-consciousness around the climate crisis, which is not to say that there's outright denial um, of the validity of the greenhouse effect, let's say, but more so this knowing and not knowing at the same time, which psychoanalysts call a disavowal. It's like, with one eye, we have it open to the truth and we see how bad this is, and then we read scary papers about surpassing climate tipping points that are gonna irreversibly alter the life support systems we depend on, and then simultaneously, we close the other eye and we think, oh, nothing that scary is ever really gonna happen. Um, thwart our concern with that dollar ability to act or stand up and make uncomfortable changes in our, in our companies, in our institutions, whatever it might be. Um, but then there's an awakening on the other side of semi-consciousness, which bursts through when it can no longer be kind of contained as this intellectual, interesting, distressing topic, and it becomes emotionally overwhelming. And it can even for some lead to a shock response, which then can start to, yes, impair functioning or really color their world in a dramatically different way. And people will often throw themselves into one of three things. They'll throw themselves into action, trying to address the problem through the kind of action as the antidote to despair idea, or get lost in grief and kind of tunnel vision about really, really dark and gloomy futures that create a sense of hopelessness that can be hard to crawl out from, or they'll go hardcore into the distancing. So really just protecting oneself by saying, can't read the news, um, not gonna touch any conversation to do with climate, stick the head in the sand, and go about our day. However, it is when a person finds ways of integrating little bits of all three, so bits of action, bits of grief work, um, and bits of distancing that they start to adjust and transform to something that is more balanced. And here, um, the action is accompanied with appropriate emotional engagement, so not getting lost in grief and hopelessness, but ways of expanding our window of tolerance for dealing with distressing feelings. And then the distancing actually shifts to not be this kind of unconscious form of self-protection as much as very conscious aspects of self-care to restore um, one's well-being. Okay, so how can we promote this kind of balance and coping 
as we all move forward in a warming world and band together to support climate action that we need. Well, of course, you know, political action from leaders is the main intervention. We cannot just learn how to self-soothe and get really zen as the world burns. Like, that's not gonna work and it's always gonna backfire. So definitely foregrounding the fact that action is critical is always appropriate in this scenario. And this needs to be a, polity, a policy priority to address mental health through this kind of lens. However, um, we really need to focus on enhancing both community psychological resilience and individual psychological resilience to deal with the fact that we can't reconcile this complex crisis in, in any kind of short-term manner and are gonna have to deal with this kind of distressing sense of loss as things continue. So the psychiatric epidemiology literature shows time and again that social capital and connectedness are the top key things that can prevent psychopathology when climate disasters hit. So I'll unpack what this means. And it goes back to a really interesting story of an innovative sociologist and psychiatrist named Alexander Layton who was working in the 1950s um, doing some pretty innovative work in Nova Scotia, Canada. And what he was doing was following for many years, this multi-decade long study, a very dysfunctional community that he nicknamed The Road. And basically, people of the road had high um, alcoholism, marital strife, lots of um, mental disorders. Um, the people in the surrounding communities thought that they were, quote unquote, delinquent, inbred, lazy alcoholics who were not to be trusted. And so, as you can imagine, there was a lot of poor well-being that tracked with this kind of um, non-integrated community. At a certain point, Alexander Layton got the idea that if he could come up with a task to incentivize the community to come together and set a shared goal and learn how to achieve it together, that maybe something interesting would shift. And so the community was brought together and asked to identify a problem that they wanted to tackle in relationship with each other. Now, while they had very low social trust in integration, what they could eventually agree on was that they wanted electricity to get power in the local schoolroom so that they could watch movies. They figured out how to lead and follow and eventually do what was needed to achieve that goal and get their electricity and then they got to watch their movies. That was followed up with another task, which they then set and met, another task they set and met, and within a few short years, things had radically shifted in the community. 10 years later when another assessment was done, mental health, had boosted, a lot of psychopathology had disappeared. The houses were tidier, there was less drunkenness, people were engaged in local church activity, and children were going to school. So all of this led Alexander Layton to conclude that coming together to achieve shared goals is key to creating a shared sense of ownership over mental health, community, belonging, and general mental well-being that can help people not only boost their own mental health, but then rebuild faster when bad things happen. So this is a key part of community psychological resilience. What does it mean in the climate crisis? Well, the uh, eminent climate and mental health researcher, Helen Berry, has taken this and then repackaged it as what she calls the pearl and the oyster. So imagine if you could get a community to come together and to address something that was their priority around climate threats or environmental injustice and getting them to 
clean up certain kinds of toxic spills or pollution or vulnerabilities, such as maybe they want to create a warning signal for, for vulnerable members of the community for the next heat wave, or maybe they want to get together and create some kind of resolution for a bill. As they do that work, they would actually be creating the infrastructure that produces the mental health effect of protecting them so that when the disasters come and hit the extreme heat or the wildfire or whatever climate event, you name it, they develop less post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety and depression, and then they have those relationships to be able to work together to bounce back more clearly as compared with those who, as the research shows, when they have low connectedness, don't fare as well. All the while, you would never have to call it a mental health intervention, which is good because of the unfortunate fact that we still have stigma around what it means to get mental health support. Also, there's research to show that activism is, of course, a buffer to climate anxiety and despair. So maybe not a full antidote because activism is not able to achieve all of its goals um, in a short-term scenario and people can still get distressed by other external realities, but it certainly does bring people together, create that sense of belonging, and provide hopefulness through the actions of working together. In terms of taking action in the climate crisis, I always love to, to talk about this Venn diagram that comes from Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, who's a marine biologist and climate policy person. And it's basically this. We cannot take a prescribed formula for what we ought to do to tap into these benefits of, of collective action and personal action in the climate crisis because humans are fickle, we like to write our own narratives, we like to do what's authentic to us. So how do we get there? Um, this Venn diagram provides a map. If you identify, for instance, what you're really skilled at, like are you really good with Excel sheets? Are you excellent at physics? Are you amazing um, cracking jokes? Are you a musician? Are you very much an institutional organizer and manager of people? Holding on to those things is, is a key quality of the kind of effective work you can do when, when considering actions to take. Secondly, you gotta identify what brings you joy, what sets you up with a feeling of aliveness, what gives you that feeling of awe and wonder and excitement and just gratitude for being alive, the things that make you feel just the most zesty. Hold on to that and include that because this is an emergency that is going to be with us for the long haul. We need to make it fun, we need to support ourselves to do it, and joy is a key ingredient. And then thirdly, what is the work that needs doing? You know, in your various problems that you might want to focus on, whether it's climate, environmental, and social justice issues, breaking that down and getting granular so that you can actually detail a sweet space of agency that reveals itself when you overlap these three parts of the Venn diagram and walking through there provides a, a better register and possibility of the kinds of actions that will stick with you. Um, and that you'll enjoy doing in this work as you come to find others who have similar approaches. Okay, but beyond all of that kind of collective action taking, there's still a lot that we can do internally, which is not just navel gazing, this is not to take away from the fact that we need all those collective actions, um, but this is to support ourselves when the burnout comes knocking, when the wave of grief traps us in its claws. So a scoping review of interventions for climate anxiety has identified that there are cognitive interventions, existential approaches, emotions-focused interventions and rituals, um, self-care practices, and creative expressions that come up here as the most useful and having evidence behind them as being effective for people. So I'll just walk through some of those. 
as we see in treatment for any kind of anxiety disorder, we need to be able to achieve cognitive flexibility so that we can step back from catastrophic thinking and get the big picture, focus on what is also true, not just the doom and gloom, but also the hopeful nourishing narratives that are grounded in robust hope because it relates to real world actions and possibilities. So um, I write about this in the book as binocular vision, the ability to hold both at the same time. It's not about sticking our head in the sand and avoiding what's distressing, but it's about stretching ourselves wide enough that we can also let in what's nourishing. So the human mind hates uncertainty for lots of good evolutionary reasons. We kind of have to do mental gymnastics to be able to feel at all comfortable with it. And the pop psychology explanation for this is that, you know, our ancient ancestors never knew when a tiger was going to jump from the bush and eat them, and therefore the vigilance that comes with that uncertainty is protective and adaptive. And the climate crisis introduces a lot of uncertainty that can feel intolerable for people about how bad it's going to get, um, by when, how it's going to show up in people's lives and communities, and, um, and how nations are going to respond and what the outcomes are going to be. And so given the immensity of the complexity of these worries and the uncertainty about what they truly mean or how to resolve them, people can split this uncertainty into black and white thinking, where it's all doom and gloom and we're going to hell in a handbasket, or it's kind of techno-optimist solutions and don't worry so much, Elon Musk's on the problem with his batteries and whatever. Uh, so the thing is that the doom and gloom side can strangely be very comforting because then at least it sounds certain and people can rest their feet in a place that gets away from the uncertainty that strokes the anxiety and then it's a narrative that, that one can glom onto in order to find some stability in disorienting times, even though paradoxically it kind of spells out the end of the world. But this is of course uh, a hugely unfortunate thing because there are many more nourishing and accurate stories to live by about the protections that are possible and in our midst to protect what can still be saved. Joy and pleasure, I already mentioned, it's so crucial. The author and activist Adrian Marie Brown has this wonderful phrase, what we pay attention to grows, and this is another way of getting at these cognitive interventions. It's so true, what we pay attention to cultivates more of itself. And so we need to be really conscious about the mix of voices that we're letting in, um, how many various points of uh, narrativization we are letting sink into our psyche when it comes to climate. And often, especially with the negative media uh, news cycle, which is you know, profitable to, to really not be focused in solutions, but in just addressing the threat, um, makes us a challenge. So it's good to be able to remind ourselves of that kind of cognitive shift that's available so that we can make space for the things that fill us up with joy. Um, existential approaches were mentioned. So one way that I like to think about the existential mindsets that can support us in the climate crisis is from the work of Robert J. Lifton. And so he's a psychoanalyst and um, psychiatrist who studied the atrocities of the 20th century. So the psychology of Nazis who ran concentration camps and how they were capable of turning away from the evil that they were causing in their conscious mind, as well as uh, the experience of, for instance, people who survived the bomb in Hiroshima. And he tells us um, that while, of course, a survivor is someone who has touched death, 
but made it out alive. A prospective survivor is someone who has vividly imagined how they might be obliterated and then uses the energy from that traumatic envisioning to take on life-protecting actions that are now required to prevent harm. So in his book, The Climate Swerve, Lifton writes, as prospective survivors, we can find meaning in our actions to combat climate change. We can take on a survivor mission of preserving our habitat and embracing genuine forms of adaptation for our species. And in doing so, we reassert our larger human connectedness, our bond with our species, and I would just extend to say our bond with other species too. At its simplest, the prospective survivor with a mind so sensitively attuned to the threat of annihilation may hold the power to shake things up and bring about new ways of being human at this time that we need. What the prospective survivor does not do is make peace with death or collapse. She sometimes even finds joy in pushing against them and would rather die trying, arm in arm with others just like her, than in a state of surrender. And when enough people generate existential meaning by stepping into this role, we muster the life force that can prevent worst outcomes from happening. And in this way, the prospective survivor channels eco-anxiety into radical hope. And I mention this because there are many people out there talking about the earth as hospice, <laughs> um, a comfort in making peace with death or collapse, which would go right against the revitalizing protective force of what a prospective survivor mindset offers us. Another um, existential mindset is to recognize that while some might think hmm, this spells the end of the world, the end of the world has happened many, many times before to many different people. When I was first fretting about whether or not to have a child in an increasingly dire climate crisis, one of the first interviews I did with an Anishinaabe leader, um, Wapishig Rice, uh, around what it means to raise children in the climate crisis, he told me that for indigenous people through his community, he would never think of not having a child. And he hadn't heard anyone in his community talking about that as connected to the climate crisis because the apocalypse has already happened to them many times before. First, of course, when the white men came and um, took their land and then took their children and put them in residential school and didn't let them speak their language and, and so on and so forth. And so now is the best time to raise proud and aware indigenous children. It's a, it's a common refrain that I caught, saw time and again throughout my research. And the uh, scholar of climate colonialism, um, Olufemi Taiwo, talks about how while what's happening today is neo-colonial and not in any way just, He's prevented from dipping into a sky's falling mentality because for the last 500 years for his people as part of the African diaspora, um, they've had it much worse, you know? Uh, of course, the transatlantic slave trade and Jim Crow and colonial apartheid. And so um, what's happening now uh, for him is just much better than it had been previously, which provides the reassurance that it's going to be better ongoingly in the future. These kinds of um, intersectional integrations are really key, particularly when some people might get trapped in a kind of world is ending perspective from severe climate anxiety. Another um, existential mindset is a form of coping called meaning-focused coping. So this is the kind of coping that is helpful for situations that can't be solved in the short term and that we must live with and grapple with and as Donna Haraway would say, like stay in the trouble with for a long time to come. And it is uh, based on appraisal-based coping that involves drawing on our beliefs and values and existential goals to sustain our well-being in difficult times. Um, so it's kind of, 
uh, best summed up as finding the silver lining, the, the benefits that arise in misfortune by looking for the benefits that any challenge gives us, whether that's wisdom or patience or stronger social relationships, the opportunity to really belong to communities um, that the climate crisis gives us, for instance, and move away from this public health epidemic we're in now where loneliness has been called out as a severe threat to health and well-being as more people live alone than ever before, for instance. Um, the intention to recall benefits, a benefit reminding or the ability to give up goals that no longer work and shift and reframe and move for something else, and uh, the ability to reorder priorities for a renewed sense of purpose when a situation might change. So it brings in this kind of dexterity to flow with a crisis and reframe, pivot, and keep going rather than get toppled over by something difficult that might have happened. Um, and all of this infuses ordinary events with a positive meaning to maintain a brightness of mind. Um, thinking of you know Nelson Mandela, maintaining a brightness of mind despite 27 years of, of prison. And we see this articulated really nicely in the famous book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, where he really explores and documents how despite being tortured by Nazis in concentration camps for years, he was able to reframe uncertainty from something that is stressful and, and difficult for the human brain to find ease with to something that was nourishing and opened up possible futures because the uncertainty around whether or not he was going to be killed allowed him to maintain an imagining of a future in which he would reunite with his wife, be able to touch her hand again, be able to travel the world and lecture about his theory of logotherapy, which articulates how man's search for meaning, even in suffering, is the point of our existence and the thing that keeps us going. And so he justifies his kind of continuance and ability to thrive under those conditions from uh, this, pivot towards uncertainty as being a place in which he could find more meaning and uh, dip into hopeful futures, which I think is really interesting when laced over a kind of climate envisioning. So um, the emotions-focused interventions are many in, in multiples when it comes to helping people deal with their climate distress. The climate-aware therapist, Caroline Hickman, says that the climate crisis is really an invitation for all of us to engage in internal activism. So we know, of course, external activism is key in what we need and policies and technologies and so on. But we also need to work on our ability to bear the distress, to bear witness to suffering and loss, to deal with the depression, anxiety, and outrage without getting subsumed or falling apart when it comes knocking at our door. So she says that this really requires stepping away from a positive psychology frame, which is quite prevalent in our culture, and tells us that some emotions are good and other emotions are bad. That like hope and optimism are always good and despair and anger are always bad. Um, despair and optimism are not inherently, uh, sorry, despair and fear are not inherently bad and hope and optimism are not inherently good. Sometimes they are perverse depending on the situation. So being able to back away and actually create some space between the emotion when it arrives and observe it eventually with curiosity rather than judgment allows us the opportunity for that emotion to reveal its insight that it carries to us because emotions carry information and they're navigational tools about what we care to see happen and what we ought to do next. And it's a lot like the poem by the Persian poet Rumi, uh, The Guest House which uh, I see as, a, as an artful way of getting internal activism across. And he writes, this being human is a guest house. 
Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So um, I'm coming closer to the end of this, uh, this journey with you, but one key term that I find people feel really empowered by is disenfranchised grief. When they hold this kind of distress and don't yet have the vocabulary to explain what they're feeling, but this seems to get to the core of what many people walk around with. Disenfranchised grief is grief that is not recognized, that we lack social norms for dealing with. We often see this around fertility problems, miscarriage, suicide, abortion, um, these things that are really difficult to process with others and have the language for. And ecological grief would be another one of those things. So we need emotions-focused interventions that can bring it into the realm of mattering, of being validated. And because so many people are now voicing climate anxiety and grief, uh, there's this kind of cottage industry that has popped up in recent years around creating those validating settings where people can get that containment. Whether it's one-off meetings like climate cafes, which are decentralized networks of gatherings happening all over the world, where people can show up and have frank conversations about how they're feeling in the climate crisis, or more processual multi-step programs like the Good Grief Network, which offers a 10-step program modeled off of Alcoholics Anonymous for working through these um, climate and eco-emotions, such that by the end of the program, you figure out how to reinvest that energy you lost from being so stressed out into actions that are authentic to you and meaningful at this time. And there's also a fledgling field of climate-aware therapy where mental health professionals in places like the Climate Psychology Alliance and Climate Psychiatry Alliances are gathered and available to help people cope better with this distress who will never write it off as being overly dramatic or a form of anxiety disorder or catastrophic thinking. So um, there are online directories for where you can find that kind of climate-aware therapist. And lastly, of course, self-care. Um, we know self-care is critical, and this is super basic for me to be saying. I feel like a, such a stereotype of a millennial, like a talking Instagram story up here talking about self-care, but um, it really is um, so needed to prevent against the burnout that many people um, focusing on climate issues from whatever angle feel. As Audre Lorde has said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that's an act of political warfare. So this is about paying attention to our bodies, eating and sleeping well, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, things to ground the nervous system and fit us into our window of tolerance for dealing with life stresses. Um, gratitude journaling, being with friends, taking breaks. I love this quote from uh, the philosopher Bayo Komalafe, the times are urgent, let us slow down. We need to be able to retreat and rethink what we're doing and how we're being rather than just slapping kind of dysfunctional um, status quo responses onto the problems that we face. So um, restoring by reconnecting with nature. We know that forest bathing is super um, valuable. Tons of studies about how cortisol, the stress hormone, drops when people intentionally spend time in nature and what this can do to boost our memory and immune system. And uh, I love the idea of a joy exercise regime. So just like you're drinking eight glasses of water a day, 
it's also really critical to make space for the celebration of joy and what we are grateful for on a daily basis and carving out that time without it being um, written off as self-indulgent to support us with climate anxiety and other kinds of emotions. So transformative change is coming, whether we like it or not, and it's already here in, in many ways, of course. So we have an opportunity here to support each other in how we come to belong to the natural world, to each other, to resilient communities, to ways of acting effectively with the time that we have to prevent the most harm. And even if you are not feeling eco-anxious, many of our young people are, and we owe it to them to support them with this new psychological construct. I get asked a lot about what gives me hope, given that what I research is inherently pretty dark, and it really depends on what your definition of hope is. Hope is a slippery concept. It means lots of different things. I mean, the dominant culture has an obsession with easy hope. Everyone wants to find the quick fix and just tell me to do ABC, and then I'm going to paper back uh, this climate problem or the emotions that come with it and be on my way. Um, but there is no easy hope in the climate crisis. We really need to dig a lot deeper in order to get things that we can hold on to and see as um, authentically hopeful. Passive optimism is not going to cut it. Technology will fix it. Silver bullets, um, not going to cut it. Stubborn optimism. This is a really interesting take on optimism, whereas if other techno-optimism is kind of a shallow form, this is about optimism on the far side of despair. And it's actually a, a form of psychological coping and strength building that Tom Rivett, Karnak, and Christiana Figueres have popularized, and they are the lead architects of the Paris Agreement, who talk about how there is never a moment in which they will not be optimistic about solutions being possible. Even after they've, they've been through the trenches of despair and grief and hopelessness and felt all of the gut-wrenching things, but knowing that social movements have always continued and achieved their goals by a stubborn optimism to stay in the fight um, until the last breath is what will achieve the goals that we want. Um, and to ground themselves, they are very much embedded in the Zen tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh um, and the approach of mindful practices for supporting social change. Radical hope is when you really don't know how your actions are going to benefit people or by when. Um, or other species, things that you care about, but you're moving forward anyway because it is the right thing to do, this is the thing that you must do. It's about taking action for the present moment rightness of it rather than expected outcome. And that this is the place um, where leadership really lives. So I love this definition of hope, which comes from Vaclav Havel. It says, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. And I keep finding that many people are indeed living from this kind of hope in the climate crisis, finding their courageous foothold to stay in the work, and that does definitely give me a robust sense of hope. So I'm going to close now with a quotation that I think eloquently sums up what the point of all this is, why we need to talk about eco-emotions, why we need to deal with climate anxiety and grief and not just dismiss it as some kind of um, piece of artifact that is getting in the way. And it is put forth by researchers in The Lancet who say, recognizing that emotions are often what lead people to act, it is possible that feelings of ecological anxiety and grief, although uncomfortable, are in fact the crucible through which humanity must pass to harness the energy and conviction that are needed for the life-saving changes now required. And with that, I will stop talking. Thank you so much for your attention.
questions for Britt Ray, come to one of these mics and ask them. reproductive anxiety I felt was really my introduction and catalyst to caring so much about this space and field, but because it brought me into a deeper research environment where I could really reckon with diverse coping tools and perspectives, I came to glom onto a lot of the existential mindsets that I shared with you tonight that really did undergird my thinking and feeling that having a child for me would be worth it no matter what happened. Um, and that there are ways of bringing children into resilient, strong communities of belonging that even with massively changing external scenarios, these strong love bonds um, will be worth giving the child, creating protections, creating a sense of um, meaning in all of this. So it was, probably on a thousand occasions I thought I wasn't going to have a child, but I did end up having a child and I have a one and a half year old right now, which came as a, as a result of writing the book. I mean, if I hadn't really grappled with all of this, I don't, I don't know if I would have, but um, it's really split. You know, I have lots of colleagues and people who are working in the climate space who have sworn off having children as a result of their ethical considerations and feeling disturbed and afraid for what a warming world will do to the well-being of children born today, and I fully understand and respect that. Um, at the same time, you know, these are deeply personal decisions um, that are becoming increasingly difficult to, to grapple with when this dilemma comes up, because although they're personal, they're dictated by external collective political circumstances. Um, and so I have found that the best thing I'm looking for the young woman who came up here. I'm sorry, I can't find you. There you are. Yeah. The most important thing is to find people with whom you can talk about this and just to grapple and to explore and to get perspectives that eventually feel right to you because, yeah, you kind of have to make a decision at some point. Or if you don't make a decision, then, you know, of course, your biology does your deciding for you. And, um, and there are many ways through, but no one's going to be able to dictate what's right for you. So, yeah, apologies that there's no easy answer on that one, but I do write about it. There's a whole chapter called Baby Doomers in the book that gets into it in much more depth than what I just did here. Yeah. Also, to add to that, um, 
many climate activists want to kind of reserve their resources and their time and their energy for the work rather than the black hole of energy and time and resources that goes into raising a child. And there's lots of those kinds of considerations um, depending on one's, one's approach and how to kind of make the calculus work. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for uh, this talk, really appreciate it. Um, I was wondering about this title, Gen Dread, if you've ever like reckoned or grappled with that over time as you like approach a more kind of hopeful, transformative, um, optimistic focus. And then as an unrelated question, I was also curious about who made the wonderful drawings on these slides and uh, kind of where that came from. Awesome. Thank you so much for the questions. I'm undergoing a rebrand right now, actually, so it's so funny that you asked that. Um, side note, the Generation Dread title, my publisher thinks that it's scaring people. <laughs> and also, climate genre is just tough market. Um, my agent is often like, next book, please, not a climate book. It really is not. People don't want it. People don't like it. Because um, it's a bummer topic, but times are changing, and you know, of course, we're looking at this in much more nuanced and, and captivating ways, and there's lots of people doing amazing narrative work around climate. But yeah, there is something potentially alienating about the type to topic, um, being dread, and kind of conjuring of distressing emotion. So yeah, I am undergoing a rebrand, not just for the book, but potentially for the newsletter. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to share that in a little bit. And the second question about the artist is an amazing woman named Ren Elizabeth who read my book and then interpreted each chapter and came up with a drawing um, per chapter. Yeah. Hi, very fun talk, Jane Kramer. Um, so I've been teaching this for 23 years, since becoming a professor here. And, um, and I also, I like to tell my students that I almost didn't have kids because of nuclear weapons, which is what I really teach. And, but that changed and I had kids and all, life goes on. This is much more serious even, which is intense. But what I've noticed is that I no longer have to explain climate disaster to students. Mm -hmm. I have to give them hope. And I was wondering if you see that. I see that abundantly. Maybe it's Eugene, maybe not. But I think that's true pretty much everywhere. And I was wondering if that's your experience. Yeah, um, people have had enough of doom and gloom. People know this in their bones. A lot of the young people today have had the specter of this crisis hanging over their heads for so long that it's just not a need to be reminded. And instead, what they are hungry for are solutions, are forms of solidarity, are ways of constructively dealing with this, that, that feel more than two inches deep, right? That feel deep and meaningful and real. So yeah, I see that hunger a lot. Interestingly, we had an environmental um, humanities course visit today and while it was broached whether students wanted to talk about emotional coping even after they had talked about feeling anxiety and overwhelm and a dread and all these things they were not hungry to talk about coping they were just hungry to talk about action unanimously right 
Um, pardon me? It's good. Yeah, yeah, we need that. It's, it is the main intervention, right? But in order to deal with the fact, of course, that we can't solve this overnight and that we're in it for the long haul, then we need these other conversation spaces around the, the secondary tools to support individuals, too. Um, yeah, thank you for the question. And I think that this is part of trauma-informed education that people are waking up to when they have classrooms full of students and realizing that um, forms of radical hope and, and real hope are, are key to the framing rather than just describing the problems the way the scientific papers do or the media does. My question is, have you looked at the worldwide real-time experiment that we just did over the last three years where we reduced energy consumption more than any other shift that we've had? It was involuntary but more energy reduction happened due to COVID closures than climate activism dating all the way back to World War II. Mm -hmm. I'm also glad that you mentioned Robert J. Lifton, who talked about nuclear extinction 40 plus years ago. And the other sort of half of that is, have you looked at how the five stages of denial apply to climate and even deeper, the limits to growth on a finite planet? A lot of it is thinking this is a binary dichotomy, but I consider greenwashing, which is ubiquitous, to be a form of denial and bargaining. Yeah. And that's where the last three years shows that superficially people are supportive of dealing with climate, but to actually reduce our consumption is about as popular as asking Republicans to get vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, thank you for those comments. So the five stages of grief that um, Kubler-Ross gives us about how people deal with endings and, and things that must go away that they love and pay an attachment cost for. Climate psychologists say that that five cycle model doesn't really map onto what we're dealing with because this is not an ending. This is not a, a human dying who we are attached to. This is about turbulent transformation um, and grappling and adapting. But I take your point about denial and bargaining with greenwashing 100%. Um, so I think we're in this interesting time, right, where people who have been running the world, who have, by natural demographic shifts, been older and been running the companies and kind of setting the political tone and everything, uh, globally, the real concern has been around economic health, right? And we have this new generation coming up who see the world fundamentally differently. It's not just economic health, it's also a calculus of climate health um, from a deeper awareness of this problem and, and other types of impacts on human and natural well-being that need to be factored in. And so, yeah, we have so much corporate malfeasance, which is continuously sowing doubt around the reality of climate chaos and has historically been polluting our political atmosphere and the ways that we can talk about it such that America's been this hotbed of climate denial for so long, but the kind of hangover effect is that now we have all these companies doing nonstop pledges <laughs> about net zero without the real structural work um, to follow that up. And so I'm excited about demographic shifts, bringing young people who are hip to climate anxiety, um, coming into power positions um, but right now, many of them are still too young to vote, let alone really 
run uh, the world in these ways that power holders do. So, um, yes, greenwashing is a huge problem. I really love, in terms of tapping into healthy outrage, <laughs> Uh, the work of Naomi Oreskes, um, science historian, and others who work with her to really outline and explain how we got to this corporate scenario, the big myth, so to speak, around how fossil fuel interests and companies have known and confirmed with their own internal scientific units since the 70s and 80s. The greenhouse effect knew the catastrophic track we'd be on if they didn't change course, but didn't alter their business plan to protect profits even though internal memos, quote, talk about a significant proportion of humanity in the future um, going to be dealing with catastrophic loss. So, um, yeah, thank you for the question. Greenwashing is real. And of course, it's a way of trying to have our cake and eat it too. And the problem with these soft denial tendencies, it's no longer about outright climate denial, it's about doing the bare minimum and what's as cheap as possible to seem socially acceptable um, while continuing to profit with, of course, polluting means, um, but that really has to change. We all need to put pressure on that changing, yeah. Good evening, I really appreciate you being here. I hate talking in public, so I apologize for the shaking voice. <laughs> um, I especially appreciate the quote, uh, Bio is a dear kin and co-scholar of mine and my partners. Oh, wow. Um, we had the privilege of getting to meet him and now know him quite dearly through our PhD work. Um, and so it's interesting because I was sort of, I came here with a question and then saw his quote and it was very synchronistic. Um, so I'm a decolonial liberatory psychologist and I have the privilege of spending a lot of time with youth um, who come to me for various reasons and ultimately what comes out in most of the conversations that I have with them is climate anxiety. Mm. And um, I sort of have, of course, this broad range of people who I see, um, but the majority of them identify in some way as a person of color. And one of the conversations that I happen to know, um, at least in, in sort of decolonial scholar circles, is, and, and Bio says this quite well, is that perhaps the way that we are approaching the problem is the problem itself. Yeah. And something that I notice is that many of my youth clients are having conversations about a need to call in the ancestors to support them in this work, a need to call in, as my partner would say, the other than human, the, the non-human into the work. And I'm just curious because I didn't see it here and I haven't yet read your book, but now I'm like, oh, I need this. <laughs> um, I'm super curious if that came up in any conversations you had with youth as you had a chance to meet with them and of course, I recognize in my own work, I see far less of that conversation with the white youth that are coming to speak with me and far more of that and the calling in of ancestors and such practices. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'm just curious if you saw any of that. Or... Thank you for those really rich questions. Yes, so on two different levels have I seen it in the research. So first, with someone like Jennifer Mullen, who I've interviewed for the book, a decolonizing therapist, I wanted to ask um, a million questions about what does it mean now that we have a climate-aware therapy movement that is continually addressing climate as the existential threat instead of the polycrisis of climate with structural racism, with genocide from colonial oppression and historical trauma and, and all kinds of things. Um, how can this be broadened out to achieve mental health justice? Because, of course, we know that communities of color who have long 
not been the ones polluting the atmosphere with carbon-intensive lifestyles are the ones bearing the brunt. And she talked a lot about why spirit, why ancestral knowledge, strength, and communion needs to be brought into this space to make it more accessible for communities of color, especially those on the front lines of climate disaster. Because when you lose everything, you need something to keep you going. And sometimes that is not material and it's not like a cognitive intervention. It's a deep embodied spiritual practice and way of knowing and embodied um, connection with ancestral lineage. And so that has been, um, yeah, very useful. She says in many of her climate anxiety conversations supporting youth of color. Also, um, there is a lot of conversation around what it means to re-indigenize as white people, you know? Uh, what it means to find one's ancestors that enlightenment modernist thinking has ripped us away from um, and connecting to those sacred places and finding a sense of belonging um, and being okay to not be squirmish about that, but actually lean into it and claim it as one sovereign aspect of being human, which is a real deep coping mechanism that is often not acknowledged. So yes, there as well. Um, yeah, and the work of Sharon Blackie is really interesting. Oh, yes, you know, cool, yeah, mythologist and psychologist who works with white folks to re-indigenize and find their ancestral lineages. Um, and then, yes, so I see it coming from youth around not just climate, but recognizing that, hey, this is showing up, yeah, sure, in my nightmares and my fears, but it's not the first thing on the list, right? It's like economic insecurity, it's racism, and it's climate disaster, and anticipatory grievances about a, force, you know, a scarier future and things like that. And again, to mirror what you were saying, I don't see a lot of white youth with climate anxiety talking about that, but I have again and again heard it from people of color who are young. from students in my class yesterday who were presenting their final project in that Confronting Emotions in the Climate Sciences course I was talking about. And they are climate science grad students, and they were tasked with creating an intervention that fosters community building and awareness and integration of some of the 
you know, principles we've been learning about over the semester about how to face this in a resilient way with others outside the classroom. So they could choose any, like, any part of Stanford campus or parts of their community to really do something creative with. I don't know if it was making a film, a podcast, hosting a climate cafe. And these two students have worked together, and they're both indigenous, and they had created a gathering within all the various indigenous clubs on campus to have a conversation about ecological grief as it specifically intersects with indigenous identity. And they were saying that they had a lot of anxiety about hosting this conversation and introducing the vocabulary and giving people objects to be concerned about, you know, ideas around which to fret because they weren't already presenting with ecological grief. Um, and while they were really nervous about this, they said that much to their surprise, even though they hosted a two-hour conversation and brought up the research and talked about the impacts on mental health and, and things like this, they ended up releasing a space where people could talk about what they were holding inside of them and what they now had some language for. And it was through being in that community and just having that validation that things got to move and be metabolized and they actually did surveys at the beginning and after um, this kind of meeting and people's levels of anxiety had dropped um, and they said that it was massively therapeutic and relieving just to kind of be in a space where you can emotionally dwell and there's no one trying to minimize your discomfort or write it off um, so it's this kind of paradoxical thing but it's really these interventions are not rocket science. It's just humans doing what humans do well. We can be relational, we can be comforting, we can be supportive. And then we see, because community saves, we can take all this on and what at first feels intolerable is actually tolerable and bearable and so on. Um, so I offer that just as a, maybe you would have similar surprising experiences depending on some of the conversations that you start with people around how they're feeling in the climate crisis and that it it's not to say that people won't defend against the distress, they will, they often, you know, the defense can go up and they might write this off as not being important, but it can also have the opposite effect of going deeper and being quite relieving. Please join me in thanking